Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Optimal Living Daily, episode 767, an excerpt from the audiobook, Everything That Remains, a memoir by Joshua Fields Melbourne and Ryan Nicodemus, and I'm Justin Mollick. Happy Tuesday, welcome back, or welcome for the first time if you're new here. This is where I simply read to you every single day of the year, including weekends and holidays. So excuse my nasal congestion, I'm quite under the weather. I'm gonna continue playing you chapter one of Everything That Remains, an award-winning audiobook, which is still unreal to me. I'd recommend listening to yesterday's episode first if you're new here, but if you're up to date, let's continue with the book as we optimize your life. Love thy neighbor was the Matthew 22 scripture mom muttered whenever she killed a roach with her house sliver. Although when she drank, the scripture often morphed into thy neighbor. And throughout most of my childhood, I thought they were two different biblical passages, a sort of Old Testament versus New Testament contradiction. Mom was a devout Catholic. She prayed daily, several times a day in fact, rosary beads dangling, praying until her right thumb and nicotine-stained forefinger-formed calluses, rotating through the string of beads, mouthing the same old Our Fathers and Hail Marys and even AA's serenity prayer, asking God to please take this from her, to please cure her of her disease, her dis-ease. Please God, please. But prayer after prayer, serenity was a no-show. To my prepubescent self, God seemed to be either malevolent or impotent or maybe even both if he existed at all. I'd have to remove my shoes to count how many times our electricity got shut off on Warren Street. I drove by that same duplex not too long ago. It was boarded up and vacant, which happened far more frequently at our apartment than our neighbors. When the lights went out in winter and it was too cold to stay home, Mom and I had special quote-unquote sleepovers at various men's houses, One of these men, a large man who wore a tie, which seemed unusual since none of the men in our neighborhood wore ties except on Sundays, was later convicted of several counts of child molestation. Mom regularly slept afternoons away while I played G.I. Joe with a meager collection of action figures, carefully placing each figure back into plastic bins in an organized and methodical way whenever I was done, controlling the only thing I could control in my disorderly world, systematically separating the good guys into one bin and the bad guys into another bin and their weapons into yet a third bin. Every so often, few of the men switch sides from bad to good and vice versa. Ah, so this is where your OCD began. Grocery bags would sometimes materialize at our doorstep next to the gap where the three missing wood planks used to be on the weather-stained, deteriorating porch. Mom said she had prayed to St. Anthony and that he had found us food. There were extended periods of time when I subsisted on St. Anthony's peanut butter and white bread and packaged sugary foods like Pop-Tarts and fruit roll-ups. I fell off that same porch when I was seven, A rotted wood plank gave way under the weight of my pudgy pre-adolescent body, launching me face first toward the sidewalk four feet below. There was blood and crying and a strange kind of dual panic. 
Panic about the blood flowing from my chin, staining my clothes crimson. Panic about mom, who remained immobile on the couch when I ran inside the house screaming, arms flailing, unsure of what to do. The lonely walk to the emergency room was just over two miles. You can still see the scars from that fall today. Each day after elementary school, I'd walk home to an empty house while mom worked a second shift job, or I'd come home and open the door and find mom passed out on the couch, a cigarette still burning in the ashtray, an inch and a half of undisturbed ash burnt down to almost a filter. It's like she misunderstood the term stay-at-home mom. My first grade teacher referred to me on more than one occasion as a latchkey kid, but I didn't know what that meant. I made friends with various elements of certain fringe social blocks, but never attempted to adapt to their tenets or fully integrate into any one particular group. I moved through junior high on this fringe, and by the time I hit puberty and then high school, nearly all my friends were kids from the neighborhood, juvenile delinquents and drug dealers, all my age or a few years older. There was Jerome and Patch and Jamar, Judton and Mook and Pacho, J9 and BLR and Big Will, most of whom would end up in prison before any of us turned 20. Ryan didn't come around much during those years. His father wouldn't let him. By age 14, I carried all the responsibilities of an adult, unconcerned with curfew, spending my evenings and weekends washing dishes for $4 an hour at a local chain restaurant that seemed to cater only to geriatrics. On my 16th birthday, mom surprised me with the gift of sobriety, an electric typewriter, the latter of which came from a pawn shop on the other side of town. I was uncertain where the sobriety came from. At first, I thought of it as one of the many bouts where mom would stop drinking for a short duration. She'd stopped drinking for several consecutive months in the past, and then I thought I'd eventually return home late one night and find her once again off the wagon. But this time was different. This time mom kept her seat on the wagon. It was unclear what triggered this newfound vigor for a life of temperance, and it was hard to swallow after watching her struggle for so many years. And yet every night when I returned home, I tentatively placed the key in the lock and cringed when I opened the door, fully expecting to see mom sprawled out on the couch, semi-conscious with an inch and a half of ash dangling from the tip of a burning cigarette. Every time I came home though, she was awake and friendly and productive, an abstemious new woman. Within a few months, mom found a better than minimum wage job at a local attorney's office, and we moved to a slightly nicer apartment without cockroaches, a cul-de-sac neighborhood on the other side of town. I even transitioned from white bread and Pop-Tarts to hearty home-cooked meals. But every day I opened that door, the feeling never changed and not knowing whether she was going to return to drinking was in many ways worse than coming home to her drunk and passed out. It was a different kind of knowing that any day she could relapse because that was all I knew. That was what she was supposed to do, what was normal. I moved out of mom's home the day I turned 18, toting a large duffel bag, my electric typewriter, and a decade of future regrets. I was convinced that if I got a job and made enough money, I could circumvent mom's path. I could somehow achieve happiness. Ah yes, the American dream happiness. Buy stuff, and it will come. So I spent my 20s traversing the corporate ladder. Fresh out of high school, I skipped the college route and found an entry-level sales job with Broadspan, a large telecom company that quote-unquote let me work six, sometimes seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day. I wasn't great at it, but I learned how to get by, and then how to get better. I bought a big screen TV, a surround sound system, and a stack of DVDs with my first big commission check. By 19, I was making $50,000 a year, more than I ever saw my parents bring home, but I was spending 65. So maybe money wasn't going to buy me happiness, or maybe I just needed to adjust for inflation. So I worked harder, seeking higher income, putting in more hours as my 20s evaporated. I celebrated my first big promotion at age 22, the same way I imagined anyone would. I built a house in the suburbs, finance with 0% down. 
Everything in my culture reaffirmed this decision, even told me I was making a solid investment. This was five years before America's housing bubble burst. It wasn't just any old house, though. It was an oversized, two-story monstrosity, with three bedrooms, two living rooms, and a full-size basement. The ping-pong table I hardly used came later, also financed. There was even a yard bordered by a white picket fence. I shit you not. Soon after building the house, I married a wonderful woman, but I was so hyper-focused on my supposedly impressive career that I hardly remember the ceremony. I know it rained that day and that my brown-eyed bride was beautiful. I remember fleeing to Mexico for our financed honeymoon after the wedding, but I can't recall much else. I don't even remember the exact date of our nuptials. When we returned with sunburns and gold-banded fingers, I got back to work, filling our two-car garage with luxury cars and our new home with fancy furniture and appliances, stacking debt on top of debt in the process. I was in the fast lane, barreling toward the American dream, a few years ahead of my contemporaries, who were all spending likewise, albeit five or so years later, rounding out their late 20s. But I was ahead of the curve. An exception, right? After a series of promotions, store manager at 22, regional manager at 24, director at 27, I was a fast-track career man, a personage of sorts. If I worked really hard and if everything happened exactly like it was supposed to, then I could be a vice president by 32, a senior vice president by 35 or 40, and a C-level executive, CFO, COO, CEO, by 45 or 50, followed, of course, by the golden parachute. I'd have made it then. I'd just have to be miserable for a few more years to drudge through the corporate politics and bureaucracy I knew so well. Just keep climbing and don't look down. Misery, of course, encourages others to pull up a chair and stay a while. And so five years ago, I convinced my best friend Ryan to join me on the ladder, even showed him the first rung. The ascent is exhilarating to rookies. They see limitless potential and endless possibilities, allured by the promise of bigger paychecks and sophisticated titles. What's not to like? He too climbed the ladder, maneuvering each step with lapidary precision, becoming one of the top salespeople and later top sales managers in the entire company. One of? Try the top. Get it right, Millie. And now, here we are, submerged in fluorescent light, young and ostensibly successful. A few years ago, a mentor of mine, a successful businessman named Carl, said to me, you shouldn't ask a man who earns $20,000 a year how to make 100000 Perhaps this apothem holds true for discontented men and happiness as well. All these guys I emulate, the men I most want to be like, the VPs and executives, aren't happy. In fact, they're miserable. Don't get me wrong, they aren't bad people but their careers have changed them, altered them physically and emotionally. They explode with anger over insignificant inconveniences. They're overweight and out of shape. They scowl with furrowed brows and complain constantly as if the world is conspiring against them, or they feign sham optimism which fools no one. They're on their second or third or fourth marriages, and they almost all seem lonely, utterly alone in a sea of yes men and women. Don't even get me started on their health issues. I'm talking serious health issues, obesity, gout, cancer, heart attacks, high blood pressure, you name it. These guys are plagued with every ailment associated with stress and anxiety. Some even wear it as a morbid badge of honor, as if it's noble or courageous or something. A coworker, a good friend of mine on a similar trajectory, recently had his first heart attack at age 30. But I'm the exception, right? Really? What makes me so different? Simply saying I'm different doesn't make me different. Everyone says they're different, says they'll do things differently, says things will be different when I'm in charge or I just need to sacrifice a few more weeks or months or years until I make it there. But then we get there, wherever there may be, and then what? We don't work less. Any man who thinks he is going to work less after getting a promotion is setting himself up with a poor expectation. 
one that will lead to pain and disappointment in the long run. If anything, we work more, more hours, more demand, more responsibility. We are dogs thrashing in the collars of our own obligations. On call like doctors, fumbling through emails and texts and phone calls on the go, tethered to our technology. But unlike doctors, we're not saving anyone. We can't even save ourselves. Someone yawns across the table, either Travis or Kent, or was it Sean? And now I'm yawning. It's not even 9am and I'm already on my third coffee, taking huge swigs, trying to compensate for last night's hurried, restless sleep. I'm tired of being this tired. I have nightmares about my job almost nightly. The nightmares often involve my boss yelling at me or asking me to do something I don't know how to do. I usually wake up panicked, nauseated with guilt. The projector is producing the sedulous sounds necessary to keep its blurry image illuminated. Mmm. My phone, a corporate-issued Blackberry, vibrates on the table in front of me. Mmm. My mother's name, Mom, ignites the caller ID. I click the ignore button to extinguish the screen. I haven't spoken with Mom since... since when? Like Thanksgiving? Has it been that long? Mom moved to St. Petersburg, Florida a few months ago to retire, which I think means to live off Social Security in a small government-subsidized apartment building for seniors. I haven't visited yet, but Florida sounds like a nice place. At least it does in her emails, to which she usually attaches photographs of sandy beaches and out-of-focus sunsets, and mostly her dog, a yappy Yorkshire terrier named Sarah, which is literally short for serotonin, to whom mom feeds ice cream and peanut butter and parades around town in colorful sweaters with matching bows mounted to her little head. Sarah is the center of mom's empty nest world. You can see it even in the pictures, mother and dog posed yearbook style in their overstuffed apartment, cheeks and midsections expanding healthily, dolled up in post-retirement, avoir du pas. They seem relaxed and happy, and mom appears to be sober, displaying her real smile through false teeth. My Blackberry screen lights up again to notify me of mom's voicemail. You just listened to an excerpt from the audiobook Everything That Remains, a Memoir by Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you to The Minimalist for not only giving me this opportunity, but for letting me share the book here with you. They didn't have to do that. They actually give away copies of their books at their events. You can pay, but if you don't have cash on you, they'll just give it to you. They're really nice guys. Please show them some love. You can visit them at theminimalist.com and find their documentary called Minimalism on Netflix. But I'll leave it there for today. And I think tomorrow we'll wrap up chapter one and then I'll come back narrating as usual on Thursday, hopefully. So with that, I'll see you tomorrow where your optimal life awaits.